It's my understanding, brothers and sisters, that in the course of time, you as a congregation have been going through the Heidelberg Catechism and have arrived at Lord's Day 4. In connection with that, a Lord's Day that speaks about the justice of our Lord God, I'd like to read together with you a portion from God's Holy Word. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8. We'll read here the narrative on the fourth plague. We'll begin at verse 20. The Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. And in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. And the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God in the land. And Moses said, It is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he will command us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go, that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you shall not go very far away. Intercede for me. Then Moses said, Indeed, I am going out from you, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully any more in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. I should also turn with me in the books of praise to the back of the um, book to the Heidelberg Catechism, a confession that speaks to us and reminds us of the whole counsel of God. In the first place, it speaks about our sins and misery. Man stands condemned before God under his just law. And Lord's Day 4 asks a number of questions on this point in an effort to get out from having to pay for the sin. Does God... Does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? And our answer, no. For God so created man that he was able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. 
He is terribly angry with our original sin as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment, both now and eternally, as he has declared, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But is God not also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but he is also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we've read together about the justice of God, the summary therein, Lord's Day 4, and we've also read about the fourth plague in Egypt. What's the connection here? Are the plagues an example of God's perfect justice in punishing the Egyptians for their sin? Is this to be highlighted as an example of sins committed against the most high majesty of God, therefore being punished with the most severe? It's indeed true. Perhaps that could be a fitting way to use Exodus 8 and Lord's Day 4 together. But rather than talking about God's wrath actively being poured out upon man in this example... This fourth plague in particular highlights the difference between inconsistent, unjust man on the one hand and a consistent, just God on the other. And this plague is also the first plague wherein God distinguishes between the Israelite and the Egyptian. And so this afternoon we will be focusing in not not on how God pours out a just punishment, but on what God teaches us about the justice that underpins, that is the foundation for such a plague. And in doing so, we may be taught by the Spirit who has given us this word more about who God is. And therefore, this afternoon, I bring to you what God has revealed to us about himself and what justice is in the fourth plague with the following theme and points. Through plagues in Egypt, the Lord teaches us about justice. We'll consider first the justice of man. Secondly, the consistency of God. Thirdly, the distinction of God. Through plagues in Egypt, the Lord teaches us about justice. We'll consider first the justice of man. This is now the fourth plague that the Egyptians were enduring. This plague is it's a plague of flies. These are swarms of insects that, that swarm the land and they make life rather difficult for the Egyptians. We're not exactly certain what type of fly is at play here. The term that's used here isn't one that's limited to normal flies. It could mean any number of different flies. Some even go so far as to suggest that these were scarabs, flying beetles. 
Others suggest that these were flies that bit you, much like the black fly so many of us are familiar here in our Ontario summers. But whatever type of fly the Egyptians were afflicted with, they were a great burden. Indeed, we may read from Psalm 78 describing these flies as devouring the Egyptians. And these flies, they they swarmed over the land. Any number of flies can be annoying. It's frustrating to have flies in the house. They're gross, they're ugly, they're unpleasant. How about swarms of them? Countless flies covering the walls, covering the ground, crawling over the furniture, buzzing in the ears. It would have been a very tormenting occasion. And in very short order, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, wanted to be free of these pests. He wanted them gone. And he was willing to go back on his own word in order to address the problem. King and judge of the lands, the ruler supreme, was not consistent in Egypt. Pharaoh calls in Moses, and he gives permission to to go and worship the Lord, but not without his influence. Moses had made a simple request to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. And now Pharaoh said to him, Go, sacrifice to your God, but within the land. We might ask, is that not fair? Is this not a reasonable compromise? Seems as though Pharaoh here is beginning to make some concessions. He's now acknowledged the Lord God of Israel. He's acknowledged that this God should be served. He's acknowledged that Israel should serve him. Does this seem like a good compromise to you? Would this not be a satisfactory way to worship the Lord God while also honoring those in authority? But Moses refused. It would not be right to do so. The request that he had made under the command of the Lord before the first plague was for Israel to go hold a festival in the desert. Staying in the land was not what the Lord had commanded. And more than that, Moses knew that the Lord was going to bring Israel out of the land of Egypt entirely. Any compromise on that point was not appropriate Either Israel was to worship the Lord explicitly as he had commanded, or it ought not to happen. And there's more to this, beloved, than meets the eye, and Moses readily sees it. Having been raised as an Egyptian prince, he knew how the Egyptians would react. They would not like the sacrifices the Israelites would make. The bulls and the rams that the Lord required of His people in sacrifice were sacred in the land of Egypt. If they were witnessed doing this, riots would likely break out. Blood would be shed as the Egyptian common folk, incensed by what they saw, would be very angry. 
blood would be shed. Pharaoh himself likely knew this. And under the direction of the great deceiver could perhaps count on the Egyptians handling the Israelite problem for him and could shrug his shoulders at the riots that had gone out of control. So Moses rightly and properly refuses on this account. And Pharaoh is forced to back down. And he changes his mind. And he adjusts himself again. His sense of what is acceptable, of what is unacceptable, changes given any circumstance. He's able to justify to himself what he is doing at any moment is right and proper. From you shall not go at all to you shall go and worship in the land. Now you may go and worship in the wilderness. It's the justice of mankind, brothers and sisters. Pharaoh changes his stance on Israel worshiping the Lord no less than four times over the course of this particular plague. The fourth and final time, how our chapter concludes, is the most egregious. That after the flies had been removed from the land on account of Moses' prayer by the Lord, Pharaoh changes his mind again and denies Israel going to worship the Lord. As a ruler of the land, it was his will that was law. His decision that declared what was right and just and what was forbidden. And it changed day by day, hour by hour. This sense of justice that changes with the wind is not a foreign thing for mankind. Indeed, throughout history, man has acted in self-interest or even in anger and disgust against others. Even today, in Canadian society, things feel off. Sense of wrong in the air. People are wondering whether things are right in Canada. Is there justice being truly administered in the country? Or is there wrongdoing unfolding? How can there be restrictions for different citizens? Where is the justice in a hard-working immigrant who can't afford a car, no longer being allowed to visit a family member a city or two over because train use is banned? Is it right for Canada to have a class of undesirables cut off from participation in society? And Christians are not alone in seeing that things are wrong. Man has a sense of justice in him. Paul reminds us that the law of God is written in the hearts of man. Man knows in his heart what is good and what is evil. Even Pharaoh, for all his evil intent, he did not start with open genocide against the Israelites. But he had tried to use more covert operations to accomplish a nefarious task in killing the newborn children of Israel. Even unbelievers can recognize and are able to acknowledge when injustice is done. But that is not enough to save him. Nor is it even enough to properly lead him to begin to do good. Man remains corrupt. 
Man is not perfectly just. And when left unrestrained by the Lord, man will only take the law of God and warp it beyond all recognition. Euthanasia is no longer murder. It's mercy. The heart of man is wicked and corrupt. He is just as willing to abandon the sense of justice instilled by the Creator as anyone else if he stands opportunity to gain something. See it again and again. There are certainly people who will use the indignation of Canadians at injustice to further their own agendas. Certainly people who will attempt to advance themselves or or create chaos and ride on the coattails of others. Indeed, for us today, being frustrated with the current government could very well lead to a different government, no better, only different in the injustices committed. But over and against the fallen state of man, however, my brothers, my sisters, we must not lose hope. We may see that this world is not truly left in its darkness. It's not abandoned to its own destruction. For light has come into this world despite the inconsistency and injustice of man. Though the justice of man is no justice at all in its inconsistencies, there remains one who is perfectly wise and just, and his light remains in this world. There is indeed one who is consistent, who does not change, as we have heard this morning. Through the plagues in Egypt and also today, we have a sovereign Lord who is consistent. But I must ask you, beloved, do you consider God to be consistent? Do we think that God is equal and fair in how He handles mankind? One can think of several issues to take up. The Catechism itself asks several questions on this point. It asks if God does man an injustice by requiring what man cannot do. If Pharaoh's heart is hardened, Is it fair to punish him when he can do no other? Besides that, is God consistent in his justice? Why is it that Egypt suffers while Israel does not? We must remember to hold God to the one absolute standard. We must hold God to himself. He alone is unchanging, eternal, wise, just, and good. And these plagues in no way take away from that glorious reality. In fact, they do the opposite. These plagues teach us about the Lord our God. As he himself said, the flies came so that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. The Lord had told Moses in chapter 7, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters. 
This is not God acting in a fit of rage, a temporary lapse of judgment, throwing a divine temper tantrum. No, this is deliberate action that is as consistent as anything that the Lord our God does. And it teaches us about God and perfect justice, holiness, and mercy. God was willing to act in time, even in the midst of a world that was broken by the will of man, man who had hardened hearts, man who would deny the holiness of God, man who would reject God's justice and substitute his own. And in the midst of that reality, the Lord acts. And though it's not recorded here in the fourth plague, we do read elsewhere that the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. What does it mean that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart? If God didn't intervene, if God didn't harden his heart, would Pharaoh have repented? Was God deliberately bringing about greater suffering by crushing the will of the Egyptian people? Is it fair for God to have Moses ask Pharaoh to let the people go, all the while knowing that Pharaoh will not say no, and also hardening his heart? That's not a one-time thing either. All throughout the plagues, you read of, the, of Pharaoh's heart being hardened. After the first plague was enacted in verse 22, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. After the second plague of frogs, chapter 8, verse 15, when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart. The third plague of gnats, 8, verse 19, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And so on, so forth, throughout the plagues, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And explicitly in the sixth, in the eighth, and in the ninth plagues, Moses records for us, inspired by the Spirit of God, that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Could pain and suffering have been avoided by the will of man if God had not intervened to increase it? But as the book of Exodus may teach us, man left in sin will only ever spiral downward into corruption. Indeed, the very first narrative of the book teaches us this lesson in chapter 1, Israel's plight in the land of Egypt. There we may find that the heart of man only continues down a path of destruction. That the Egyptians, even when confronted with the blessings that Israel had received, despite their persecution... Rather than asking why and how those blessings came about and seeking it for themselves, the Egyptians only progressed into greater and greater travesties, moving from enslavement, enslaving the Israelites, to cruel and ruthless labor, on to clinical infanticide, finally even open genocide entertained by the Egyptians. Man in his folly will not repent, will not seek well-being. Man will only harden himself if left to his own devices. 
Pharaoh did not need the intervention of the Lord in order to sin. The capacity for sin is intrinsic to man. But this does not take away from the reality that God is sovereign. And that even the wickedness of man is not beyond his control. God may be merciful in giving grace on whom he will grace. He will give grace. And he may leave in sin those whom he will leave in sin. But this world and its sin does play a part in God's plan. God in his perfect power and knowledge knows more intimately than we do ourselves our truest thoughts and desires and what we will. For him to act from eternity upon what he knows from eternity is who he is as God. His eternal plan is to have his glories proclaimed regardless of us, regardless of sin, regardless of the intent and will of fallen man. His plan, therefore, is perfectly righteous and perfectly holy in being realized through the action of a man hardened in sin. So how does God harden Pharaoh? How does the hardening of man become a divine action without it making God author of sin? Man had been created in the image of God, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, but man had treated such gifts as something worthless, something to be discarded. For the Lord to withdraw extending such gifts and allow man to further rob himself of such gifts is not the same thing as causing him to sin. The desire, the will, ultimately the decision to sin is ultimately and entirely of man. Man has already rejected the gifts of God and would substitute a blessed life for painful suffering and sin. That the Lord would remove any remnant of the light of nature that is his image from a man already fallen, that's not a sin of God. So God may leave Pharaoh in his fallen state, but what about Israel? Is God inconsistent in leaving Pharaoh while taking Israel? Were they any better? Did God see something in the Israelites that is more valuable than what he saw in the Egyptians? God remained consistent in carrying out his justice. It doesn't mean that Israel had made sufficient payment for their sin or that they were, in fact, better than the Egyptians. As Moses himself reminded the Israelites after they had been delivered, it's not on their merits that they were redeemed, but because the Lord had loved them and kept the oath that he had sworn to their forefathers. Indeed, as we read this morning, the Israelites had rejected the word of Moses. Moses reminded them in Deuteronomy 7, just before they went to the promised land, know that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love. Israel wasn't saved because they were better, but because the Lord 
is faithful. Israel wasn't saved because they could make payment while Egypt could not, but because the Lord provided payments. The Lord, in His consistency, will not allow sin to go unpunished, beloved. His wrath is as great against the sins of Israel as it is against the sins of Egypt. Egypt was brought to ruin for her sin. And the Lord would have brought Israel to ruin for her sin too. And indeed, the Lord will bring all mankind to sin, uh, to ruin for sin apart from repentance. Indeed, throughout the generations, Israel was handed over to ruin because of her unrepentant behavior. God will not let Israel to get away with sin. Indeed, the first three plagues stand as testimony to that. Israel had suffered as Egypt did. They also received punishment from the Lord. We do not know how Israel reacted to this. We do not read in Moses' account here in these ten plagues anything of repentance from Israel. The previous record of what the Israelites were doing is what we read this morning. How they did not obey Moses or listen to his voice. They were alarmed and they had blamed Moses for increasing their difficulties. And we don't read about the Israelites in action again until the Passover. When we read that the Israelites did as the Lord commanded. Somewhere along the line there was a change in heart. But the Spirit in infinite wisdom does not share with us when or where that was. Perhaps it was after the first plague, just before the fourth, or immediately after the third, or not even until the ninth that the Israelites became willing to listen. Though we do not know because the Lord does not tell us. And He does not tell us for good reason. It's not about how the Israelites are acting. It's entirely about how the Lord is acting. The Israelites could not repent. The Israelites could not be saved because of who they were or what they did. No, they would only be saved because the Lord declares it. Israel would be spared by the will of the Lord, not the will of man. The mighty acts of God include taking a people that were unrepentant in Exodus 5, verse 21, and making them to do His will by Exodus 12, verse 28. Israel was no more consistent than Pharaoh was, but the Lord in His wisdom had them set apart, and He distinguished them for His own glory. There's a special distinction found here in the fourth plague that's not found in the previous plagues. We read in verse 22, On that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there. Unlike the first three plagues, this plague will not impact the Israelites. The Egyptians would suffer, but not Israel. At this time, the Lord distinguishes between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And there's a few things to note from this distinction because this has a purpose in glorifying God. 
It glorifies God in showing His power, His authority, His justice, and His mercy. In the first place, it glorifies God in showing His power. We've already seen, and we can see in these plagues, a growing divide between the power of God and the power of the Egyptians and their gods. The first plagues had shown how the gods of Egypt, they're either non-existent or they're powerless to stop the Lord God from displaying His power. The first few plagues had a clear connection with what the Egyptians considered sacred and divine, beginning with the river Nile itself. And there's no different here either. With each play, the magicians of Pharaoh were becoming less and less capable of comparing their ability with what Aaron and Moses were doing. And this plague now shows a clear distinction between the suffering of Israel and the suffering of Egypt. For the Egyptians to be suffering while the Israelites did not, this is clear testimony that whoever was enthroned in heaven was favoring Israel and not Egypt. It was the God of the Israelites, not the gods of Egypt. Otherwise, Israel would also be attacked, or everyone altogether, indiscriminately. No longer could the argument theoretically be made that the gods were displeased with everyone living in the land. Now it's clear that it's Egypt, not Israel, that incurred divine wrath. In the second place, it glorifies God in showing His authority. The flies listen to His command. Think on that for a moment. Have you ever dealt with a swarm of flies? Waving at them, swatting at them, using a mesh or a spray, it doesn't matter what you do, a swarm's not something that you can easily control. But that's not an issue for the Lord. The flies did not fly about indiscriminately, but they carried out their purpose. God dictated their location. God dictated their timing. They came when He commanded. They left when He commanded. And they went where He commanded each time. And this isn't a matter of someone that's stretched to the limit, striving their best like turning a fire hose in the general direction of a fire and hoping for the best. No, there's precision here. Even over flies. Demonstrating the absolute authority of God Almighty over creation. In the third place, it shows God's justice. We've already touched on this point, but it's good to reflect upon it. God's justice requires that sin committed against the Most High Majesty be punished. The ten plagues are a healthy indicator of that. Suffering and sorrow are in this world because of sin. God has said that there's life in serving Him and worshiping Him, but suffering and death and rejecting Him, turning away from Him. And finally, This distinction reminds us of the mercy of God. The glory that is His because of it. For the Israelites were just as guilty of receiving punishment as the Egyptians. 
They were equally deserving of punishment by God. They were stubborn. They were difficult. They were unfaithful. And that they had endured punishment for the first three plagues was no mistake. And it's not as though the first three plagues was sufficient payment for their sin. No. The Lord chose to spare them in this plague because they were His people. He was to bring glory to Himself through showing mercy to them. Why the Lord chose to be merciful to Israel and not to Egypt is part of the eternal mysteries of His divine plan. Indeed, Moses reminded Israel it's not because of them that they were saved from Egypt by mighty acts. No, it's because of the Lord. And just as it was for the Israelites, so also for us today. God is just, God is fair, God is holy, and He doesn't overlook our sins. We are equally worthy of these ten plagues. Christians are not holier or more righteous than unbelievers in his or her own work. It's only in the renewing work of the Spirit that we begin to display righteousness and holiness. We, like the people of Israel, are spared the wrath of God against our sin because of His grace and mercy. So Lord's Day 4 reminds us of God's fairness in His justice, His holiness in that justice. And these things themselves give us assurance of our Savior's actions for us. For if God was so fair as to be unwilling to go back on His demands that would result in our eternal punishment, how much more so will He be fair to Christ and will not go back on His promise of eternal life in His love now that that demand has been met? If God is so holy as to not allow any slight against His perfection to be passed by, willing to pour out such terrible wrath with these plagues against Egypt, how much more so will He receive us into His own while we are clothed with white robes of righteousness, having been washed clean in the blood of His Son by His Holy Spirit? God maintains His justice throughout time displayed in the plagues that he had brought in the land of Egypt, but especially highlighted for us in the death of his son. He carried through the guarantee of his justice. If you sin against me, you will die. Psalm 90 reminds us to consider the power of his anger and his wrath, and they humble us when we consider exactly how great the sacrifice of our Savior truly was. And so, beloved of Christ, may the knowledge of God's holy wrath and His fair justice, consistent as He is, remind you of who you are before Him. What was necessary for you to be called His own? May you be humbled with awe at His steadfast mercy and rejoice at the coming of Judgment Day when it will be revealed that His justice has been met and this world will be made new for the sake of your own Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.